Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Man, of Braves yeah. have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves, champions. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney here in the Kia Studios on a wonderful and frigid weekend as we approach uh, the Thanksgiving holiday, the uh, Christmas holiday, which will be coming up after that. But we just know that winter, of course, is coming. And Corey, for the world of Major League Baseball, the end of the World Series, winter basically, for all intents and purposes, has arrived. So the Braves have been busy all across Major League Baseball. We're seeing some little moves. Some pieces are going across the board or at least being put out for the bigger games that are to play as free agency is kicking up. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of moving and shaking on the hot stove. But we're getting a little bit of an idea about how Alex Anthopoulos is sizing up this 40-man roster in advance to, I'm sure, some bigger decisions. I'm still waiting for that first domino to fall, though, right? It's like everything's going to happen after... X happens, and we've not seen X happen yet, whether that be Aaron Judge or the first of these big yeah. shortstops assigned. But it's man, I just want something big to happen, and it just needs it, we we need it, we need it now. Yeah, and I think when you say something big, and and th- maybe this is just the way I look at the winter, but it's not just the oh so and so signs a big deal to stay with their club, like Edwin Diaz signing with the Mets, like that's cool and all, but. He's been with the Mets for a hot minute, so that doesn't really move the needle down here, even if I'm the biggest Timmy Trumpets fan of all time. (laughs) But it's that first big contract where somebody, say, the stature of an Aaron Judge, signs with a different team or signs some crazy record-breaking contract, perhaps, to stay in New York. I don't know. Yeah, because you need everyone has plan A, plan B, plan C, right? And until yeah. they have plan A off the board, we're not going to know how it's going to impact the rest of the market. So that's why I'm saying we need that first major move. And, and of course, that could be the shortstop. It could be Judge. It could be DeGrom, Verlander. Yeah. We need, we need that big first thing to happen. And it could happen any day now. That is kind of the beauty of it. I mean, I know a lot of people enjoyed, say enjoyed, but the lockout last year had an interesting effect on free agency because we had the crazy flurry yeah. of moves. It felt a lot like free agency in some other sports, but it didn't feel like Major League Baseball free agency. I'd never seen anything like that. No, it did. I mean, it did feel like the NBA, right? It felt like the NFL. It felt yeah. like that just, man, that flurry. I remember you and I were, you know, on battery power, we were talking about this move, that move, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, by the way, Kenley Jansen's now with the Braves too, and it's like we're yeah. end up doing, you know, episodes in the middle of the night, and it's just just felt like an onslaught of news that we're just not used to in baseball, and now yeah. we're back to that slow drip, that slow movement that we always are used to here in the, the hot stove season. And really there were two crazy signing periods because a lot of people, they wanted their deals done before this lockout yeah, was, was going to fall, but then, of course, yeah, when we came back, yeah, there were a few moves that happened, and and some of them really affected the Atlanta Braves, the trajectory of the 2021 or 2022 club, and of course beyond. And we're going to see uh, what happens here in the winter of 2022. The Braves, though, they were busy, like all of Major League Baseball was, adding players to the 40-man roster ahead of the Rule 5 draft, which will happen at the winter meetings in the first week of the month of December. And then there was a Friday deadline to tender contracts to players on their 40-man roster as well. So there were some hellos and some goodbyes, I guess, if you want to call them that. Some non-tendered players for the Braves. Outfielder Guillermo Heredia. I'm not going to lie to you, man. This one hurt a little bit because (laughs) 
I have followed the Braves my entire life, and I, it is not hyperbole when I tell you that Guillermo Heredia is one of my favorite Braves ever. I can see that. I mean, obviously, it's the energy, it's yes. the enthusiasm, it's you know what he means to celebrations, all that fun stuff that you're never going to look at Guillermo Heredia's contributions in a stat line and be like, man, that guy meant a lot to a World right. Series champion. Yeah. But you know what he meant with the foam swords and they just the, the promos yeah. that he yeah. was cutting and the yeah. celebrations as the Braves were making their run to October and through October a year ago. The slash with the pink swords and all the—I mean, he was the best hype man in all of baseball. And when you talk about glue guys that you want around in your clubhouse, Guillermo Heredia was one of those guys for the Braves. He meant an awful lot, and perhaps he will still find a way to be involved with the Braves moving into the future because. You can always try to re-sign him if you want to. So we'll see how that plays. But also Jackson Stevens was non-tendered. Uh, Salvino Bracho, as well as Alan Rangel and Brooks Wilson, all these guys were non-tendered. In the case of Rangel and Wilson, though, according to David O'Brien of The Athletic, they re-signed minor league deals with the Braves. So, you know, just off the 40-man roster. But you got to have that flexibility moving forward, and the Braves had to protect a few guys. When it comes to Rule 5, they added some prospects. That was not altogether shocking either, but uh, Ryland Bannon and William Woods were claimed on waivers to the Cubs and the Mets, respectively. So uh, quite a few goodbyes there, but not necessarily outside of Heredia names. And Jackson Stevens, I guess you could say, he had a nice role for the Braves in 2022. He made some good contributions. I really like Jackson Stevens, you know, beyond the fact of just getting to, you know, to know him throughout the season and his story. And, you know, certainly he had a, a wild run back to get to the, the majors, yeah. but just the effectiveness. I mean, uh, you look at what he was able to do on the mound. I mean, a 209 average on his four seam, 182 in that curveball, just logged a lot of meaningful uh, innings for this team. And I think was ended up being a bigger contributor to that bullpen than anyone would have expected. Yeah, and kind of out of nowhere. I mean, yeah. You have Tyler Matzik's story, of course, of basically being out of baseball, unable to throw strikes. Well, for Jackson Stevens, it was a little bit more of a traditional long road to get back to the big leagues for him. He'd had a little bit of time with Cincinnati back in the day, but in order to get back, he had to make quite a few stops. And his time in Atlanta, I think, was productive and useful, most certainly. Now, there were some other deals that were going on because of tendering contracts and trying to straighten out all of the things you needed to on the 40-man that I think uh, were of interest and that people might have been expecting. And let's start with Tyler Matzik. We know he's not going to pitch in 2023 thanks to Tommy John surgery. He's underwent as of about a month ago. But this is a two-year deal with an option, $3.1 million total for those two guaranteed years, $5.5 million club option. I think that's a pretty good move to keep Tyler Matzik around. And once he gets this arm thing straightened out, if he can come back and be anything close to what he was prior to that, I think the Braves are going to be pretty excited to have Tyler Matzik around for the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree there. And certainly last year there was a lot of weirdness, right? Like even when he was out there, you saw the fastball velocity had dipped. You know, the swing and miss just wasn't there like it had been a year before. And obviously the guy logged a lot of innings, you know, in, in the 2021 season. I mean, it was the most he had pitched since 2014 at the major league level. And he pitched a lot of really stress innings in the postseason as well. Some really meaningful moments there as the NLCS against the, you know, the Dodgers as part of that night shift crew. And unfortunate for him that he had Tommy John, but he's secure. The Braves know what they have in him potentially mm -hmm. going forward. And he just needs to get back to the guy that he was a couple years ago, you know, when he was just mowing down batters on cue. You know, and love the player, love the person. It's yeah. a fit that the Braves are always looking for, I think. And when you talk about moments for a Braves reliever and big outs, and Tyler Matzik delivered some just unforgettable outs in the NLCS against the Dodgers in 2021. I mean, that is going to be playing on Braves highlight reels for a long time to come. Yep. 
and he was a huge part of the Braves winning the World Series. So hopefully for Tyler, uh, you know, get himself uh, through his rehab throughout the course of 2023 and get back on the mound as soon as he possibly can. And we'll be looking forward to seeing him jump back into whatever this bullpen mix is going to look like that far down the road. Now, the Braves are also trying to figure out what their rotation is going to look like in 2023. And I know a big story that we followed through the second half, the road back to the big leagues for Mike Soroka. Would have been wonderful to see it happen this year, but I think he really checked some big boxes on his rehab checklist, which was get back on a mound in a professional game and prove to himself that, hey, all of this work and going through not a torn Achilles once but twice, that he is finally entering that home stretch of hopefully rejoining the Atlanta rotation. He made half a dozen minor league starts. He gets a one-year deal for 2023 with the Braves worth $2.8 million. I think this is a really great deal. And at 25 years old, for Mike Soroka, it, it, the future is still bright, I believe. Yeah, 25 frames in the minors this past season. Struck out 25, had seven walks. I mean, they're, they're obviously looking at him you know, with the, the hope that he can get back on that major league mound in the 2023 season. And I think you, you know, you you look at the way that this rotation is set up and having, you know, so many guys that are locked into spots, there is a log jam of options for the fifth spot. And if either Ian Anderson or Mike Soroka can look like they have at the height of what we've seen out of them so far in a Braves uniform, this is going to be a very formidable rotation. We, you know, the cliche obviously can never have enough pitching. The fact that they have so many guys with track records, if they can just get those guys to be that again, man, this is going to be a nasty rotation in 23. Yeah. And when you take Mike Soroka, what he's accomplished, and Ian Anderson, what he has accomplished, a high-degree prospect like Kyle Muller, and also what we saw from Bryce Elder last year. I mean, yeah. no, you cannot have too much starting pitching. I mean, maybe you could because you didn't need Jake Odorizzi necessarily. Went ahead and traded him off to the Texas Rangers. Colby Allard's back in the mix. Whether or not he gets a, a fuller look as a starting pitcher in the minor leagues and maybe has a chance to contribute in that role for the Braves, that remains to be seen. I think there's a possibility there, a path for him to be a pretty useful reliever, if nothing else. So that's another thing to think about. But you do have that depth, Corey, and we know that's important because as we've seen for the Braves, particularly in rotation, that depth has been tested time and time again. So you have got to have other options. And the Braves kind of got snake bit by that again here in 2022 because Max Fried got sick. We're going to talk about that more a little bit later because we found out some very interesting insights on that from Rick Kranitz on MLB Network. Also, you had Spencer Strider dealing with the oblique issue, and those were a couple of things that were ill-timed for this Atlanta Braves club. So we know over the course of 162, you're going to be looking for answers at different times, and it's good to have this kind of depth. Yeah, I think you could make the argument if you go out and spend you know, anywhere between you know, 16, 25, 30 million to go out and get that guy that is going to be a guarantee in the rotation that you feel a little bit better. But the fact is you just don't know even if that guy is going to be able to get you through the season. So you want to have as many potential options as you can. I think that's why you lock up Charlie Morton the way you did and hurry up and get that $20 million out of the deal for him, uh, other way out of him before the, yeah. even the season's over in 23. There is no lack of options, which is the best thing you can say for the Braves at this point. No, and I think that really is going to paint the picture or help paint the picture of what the Braves could be if they are looking for anything in rotation moving forward in the winter. That is not as high on the list, I think, as, oh, you know, Maybe figuring out shortstop, left field, DH, maybe grab another reliever, those kinds of things. Now, speaking of a couple of other guys, Max Fried, AJ Minter, they're both arbitration eligible. So the Braves have a chance to sign them prior to swapping figures or going to trial with those two important left handers on the roster as well. So I would anticipate those deals getting done. And man, you think about uh, extension candidates, Max Fried, his name should be on that list. Heck, I think AJ Minter's name 
should probably be on that list as well. we got a lot more to get to here on this edition of From the Diamond as we continue talking about the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, of course, setting the stage for what's to come over the course of the winter where Dansby Swanson's a free agent, a central figure of Atlanta's winter. What will the Braves do at shortstop? We're going to discuss it next right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Your place for all things MLB and our Braves. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We hope you're enjoying another couple of hours here that we have. or well, a little less than that here today as we're going to run you up to 5.30. But a nice little swath of Braves and baseball talk is what we have for you. If you're enjoying what you have heard so far and Want to stay with us all winter long? We'd love you to do that. Make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. Also find us on the Odyssey app. You can also check out fromthediamond.com to get everything else I've got going on here these days. Now, Corey, the Braves have a lot going on this winter, and I think that the one name that we hear time and time and time again and will until those big moves we were talking about earlier begin to happen, those dominoes start to fall, is what's going on at shortstop for the Atlanta Braves and the incumbent Dansby Swanson, who, of course, now is a free agent most unsurprising piece of business this winter so far, Dansby Swanson, one of uh, several players to decline a qualifying offer. $19.65 million what the Braves extended out there for him. It'd be just for 2023. And, of course, we know that's a procedural move for clubs who hope to gain draft pick compensation should their players sign elsewhere. And, you know, that's just one of those things we knew was going to happen. The Braves were going to extend it, and Dansby Swanson was going to decline it. I'm interested to see now how this is going to, and I mean, that's not going to have really any effect on anything because it was either going to be a multi-year deal in Atlanta or a multi-year deal somewhere else for Swanson. That's the full expectation here. But, you know, where and when are, are, are these shortstops going to land and what are these deals going to look like? And as we've talked about, you and I, for the past few weeks, if not a couple of months now, it seems like there are kind of some different tiers, even within the top tier of great shortstops that are out there. There's Carlos Correa. There's Trey Turner, there's Xander Bogarts, then there's Dansby Swanson. Among those four, they all feel like four uniquely different kinds of talents with different strengths, but they're going to be in high demand across all of baseball. Yeah, without question. And it seems to be that most of the sites that are, you know, either looking at these guys and forecast and, you know, the median value, they're, what they're expected, AAVs, you know, war projections, all that, kind of have that same breakdown where it's like that Correa Turner and then you go a little bit lower for Bogarts and a little bit lower for that for Swanson and that seems to be you know the the rankings there are the four of them and you're looking around that 30 million dollar range for Correa and Turner and uh, Bogarts around 28 and then a little bit lower that from that for Swanson so um, you know nothing's really changed and I think we're just waiting to see you know again that first domino to fall to figure out where the other guys are going to land. Now here's something you and I talked about on battery power, but of course, again, it's Dansby Swanson. He's kind of the uh, the central figure for the Braves' winter so far. I don't think there's any question about that. But Ken Rosenthal of the Athletic with a report that the Braves have certain intentions at shortstop, or maybe only one intention at shortstop, and that is uh, either re-sign Dansby Swanson or they're not going to go after and and be linked to any of these other big name shortstops. Now, of course. That's industry sources and, and news reports and whatnot, and maybe that's true. I don't think that there's been an expectation, realistic or otherwise, that the Braves are going to go out and give Carlos Correa $275 million or give Trey Turner $200 million, for that matter. I don't necessarily see those as moves that were high on the list of probables for the Atlanta Braves in the offseason. I still think Dansby Swanson and the Atlanta Braves, that's the best fit for both sides. But it's an interesting report, most certainly, and, and Ken's very well connected 
but I don't know that it's anything other than kind of an obvious, uh, you know, uh, approach to looking at the free agent part of this. So what did you take away from that report? And then, of course, we can talk about the other thing that has nothing to do with free agency and nothing to do with who's already in the system. Yeah, and I think you can look at it from a couple of different angles, right? You can either say, okay, the Braves have all their eggs in the Dansby Swanson basket, and if they don't get him, then they're just going to keep it in-house with Vaughn Grissom and Orlando Arcia. You know, or you can say, look, maybe if they don't get him, then they feel comfortable enough that they're going to go out and put their money somewhere else in the free agent market. Or there's always the potential that they could go out via trade and upgrade the position That's, that way as well. Yeah. And I think th- those are the different ways that, from you know, my you know first blush of this, they really believe Dansby Swanson's coming back. And if they don't get him, they feel comfortable enough with what they've seen with Orlando Arcia and Von Grissom to think that they could get by in the meantime. I have seen the Braves in worse positions at both shortstop and other spots uh, over the course of the rebuild where Atlanta was seemingly searching for answers everywhere than a young, talented player like Vaughn Grissom who got big league experience and a pretty seasoned, at this point, major league veteran in Orlando Arcia who definitely gave the Braves some value in uh, kind of a reserve role, but also when he was pressed into everyday duty with Ozzie Albies being down for a good portion of last year. But I think you hit the nail on the head, or at least the way I'm looking at it, it's not altogether surprising if you tell me, well, if the Braves don't sign Dansby Swanson, they're not going to sign Carlos Correa or, or Trey Turner or Xander Bogarts. I, I kind of already knew that, but thanks anyway. And, you know, I, I guess if, if you're subscribing, then you're getting content, and that's the whole point of uh, sports media or the athletic. Either way, I look at it from the trade standpoint as being more of a possibility, even in a farm system that, as we've heard, at least we've been told, um, is now at the lowest point that it's been at since the last time it was at that lowest point, which was about a year ago. Then the Braves went out and had two prospects finish one and two in Rookie of the Year this year, which you know led me to believe that the Braves still know how to develop players, even if they don't have one of the top five farm systems in all of baseball. But long story short, I think a trade still makes a ton of sense, and I think that could be a way in which the Braves could strengthen themselves at shortstop. And there's some interesting candidates out there. One name we're hearing a lot is Willie Adamas of the Brewers. That's a name that's been thrown around. Another one that I'm seeing that's been linked primarily to the Seattle Mariners, at least as far as the reports that have come out in the last 24 hours, and that's Glaber Torres. Torres is a really interesting name to me, though I think that he might be a better second base fit than a shortstop, but he has played shortstop before. Yeah, and I, you know, the situation in Seattle, J.P. Crawford was told that he was going to be their shortstop and he wasn't going to move to – whoever they were going to look at potentially is coming in was going to have to move to second base. Now, Jerry Depoto, their GM's kind of backtracked on that a little bit and has now said, okay, if the right guy comes in, right. then maybe J.P. Crawford is willing to shift over to second base of and course. we'll have a new shortstop. It's not as – look, J.P. Crawford's a fine player, but he's not – Carlos Correa, Trey Turner, Dansby Swanson, Xander Bogart. So I right. think you at least have to have that open-mindedness. But yeah, it's uh, it's inter- I, I think that's an area where they could upgrade, and certainly uh, they're in the same boat as the Braves right now. And even to the point of Seattle and what they're building out there, there's a difference in you know going out and trading for another center fielder and moving Julio Rodriguez, or <laughs> going out and getting another shortstop and potentially moving J.P. Crawford off of that position to second base. I looked at this a lot of different ways from the free agency stuff that we've obviously talked about and and the feeling that the prevailing feeling that Dansby Swanson is the Braves number one target as far as free agent shortstops that are out there right now. Then you have that possibility of a trade. Now I've gotten questions involving this and I just, I've gotten enough of them that I wanted to bring it up because I just, I feel like it's interesting, but there have been questions and I don't think this is anything from inside of the organization whatsoever. Let me go ahead and preface it by that about Ozzie Albies moving back over to shortstop. And that's a position he has not Hmm. played regularly 
in six years. Now, could he do it still? I'm sure he probably could. Uh, I just don't see that as a realistic possibility for what the Braves are going to be looking to do. But if that was an option and you could pivot over and see about adding someone like a Glaber Torres, who, again, I do think is a better second baseman than a shortstop, that would give the Braves some kind of flexibility and options. And I would imagine that at some point there are those different creative meetings where just everything's kind of out there, no ideas too crazy. What do you think? What are you looking at? What kind of you know things should we even consider? I'm not saying that this has definitely happened because it hasn't. I have no information whatsoever on this. I just keep getting that question. What do you think about that possibility? Would that be something that you should think the Braves would even be open to? Yeah, I, th- I remember, you know, those early days in spring training when Dansby and Ozzy first got there and it was like, OK, which one of them is going to be at shortstop the first time that they take the field together in their first spring training action together? I mean, we were like, OK, who's going to be at short? Who's going to be at second? Right. And, you know, certainly it's played out pretty well for both of them at this point. But I, there's there's the ability of Ozzy Albies to play uh, to play at shortstop. But is that ultimately what both sides want? I, I, I would not be surprised if within the Braves, you know, R&D department and their analytics team, that they have looked at the potential of what that looks like because I think you have to have plan A, B, C, to D. To do your as job. Well. Yeah, you have yeah. to, you have to yeah. at least look at it, right? Do I think that Ozzie Albies is going to be the opening day shortstop for the Braves in 2023? No, but it's at least it's it's worth going down that road because I think all sides have to go down that road because you have to prepare for anything. I mean, it's, from everything we've heard from Dansby Swanson, he wants to be here in Atlanta. Right. He has the clothing brand. He has so many ties to this community. He wants to be here. There is always the possibility that Dansby could be in Chicago, he could be in San Francisco, he could be in New York, he could be at any of those places. We just don't know until there's a press conference held that says Dansby Swanson is here. Right, and that's really what I'm waiting on. And as far as changing my mind on what the best fit is for the Atlanta Braves, I just got the question enough and talking about the roster and the different things that can go on and the different permutations and ideas that people have. It's just it's not as simple as just walking in and saying, all right, well, you're moving here, you're moving here, and you're moving here, however the whole thing works. That's just typically not it. But when you do have an R&D department and you do have different posts in the front office that their job is to think outside the box, I mean, I've heard crazier things happening. I don't think it's you move your gold glove caliber second baseman to shortstop and then go <laughs> sign a second baseman yeah. or trade for a second baseman. But crazier things have happened in the history of sports in Major League Baseball. And hey, hey, the Braves have had crazier trades that have gone on in the franchise's history, just not really as much lately as far as changing positions and swapping things out. But, you know, Chipper Jones moved to left field so that the Braves mm-hmm. could accommodate third baseman in Vinny Castilla and stayed out there for a while. I mean, the Braves have moved some guys around at times, and some of them have some pretty big pedigrees, pretty big names. And I hate to go back to Chipper as like the gold standard of every time somebody doesn't want to do a thing, well, remember Chipper Jones did it. You can always throw Freddie out there. Right. Well, he's going to be playing third base, from what I understand, for the Dodgers, who just let go of uh, Justin Turner. No, that's probably not going to happen either. So this is the time of year where we talk about yeah. all the things that could be just a little bit crazier. But I just had gotten the question, so I figured I'd throw it out there because that's what we do this time of year. Now, Vaughn Grissom, as we talked about a little bit earlier, is a key player for this from the in-house perspective for what options the Braves have if Dansby Swanson doesn't resign. He's getting his work in in New Orleans with Ron Washington this week. He's going to do it several times over the course of the offseason, going to go visit and go through what is, I think, the probably the best infield university that you can enroll yourself in at any level of this sport, and that's to work directly with Ron Washington one-on-one. And David O'Brien chronicled this for The Athletic in a really great article. I would recommend that you go read that if you haven't already. But Washington said that he believes in Grissom and his ability to be an everyday major league shortstop and to be a pretty darn good one. 
and that the Braves are going to look very seriously at doing that if Swanson can't return, as we just spoke about a couple of months ago. So I want some T-shirt manufacturer out there to make Camp Wash T-shirts because I truly think that we need those in our lives. That has something that has to happen. But I've gotten some comments on this, too, in, in terms of Grissom's arm strength, right? And people yeah. wondering, is he long-term shortstop? Is he long-term second base? Where do you even put him at? So he averaged, and StatCast has its its arm strength grade, which is based on 80 uh, miles per hour. Grissom maxed out at 80 miles an hour, averaged 77.2 at second base, which was 63rd among all qualified second basemen. Swanson maxed out at 87, averaged 79.2, and he was even in like the you know the bottom percentiles yeah, among shortstops. So what's yeah. going to happen if you take Von Grissom's arm and lengthen that throw? I don't think that's – I mean, the, the, the range to me is what differentiates Swanson and Grissom, but I don't know that what we're seeing from the analytics side of it plays to Von Grissom being long-term at short, but I, they're obviously, again, going down all those roads of every plan and at least preparing him for the possibility that he could log time at shortstop in 23. That's what's going on at shortstop for the Braves right now, which is to say not much of anything. No decision has been made. Lots of options out there, though, and lots of things to talk about over the course of the winter, unless or until somebody signs somewhere. And if they sign in Atlanta... We'll be talking about that, too. We'll continue our look at this week in Braves baseball, get into a little bit of awards, and, of course, talk a little bit about the payroll of this here Braves club, which was also making headlines this week. We'll let you know about that as we continue on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And we continue here on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios in Midtown as we continue talking about what's going on with the Braves in this hot stove season. Not a ton thus far, but some little moves here and there to let you know that the work continues. And, of course, yeah, the winter meetings are right around the corner. Those will be happening the first week of the month of December. Those will be out in San Diego. That is always a great stop if you're a baseball aficionado of any sort or just a media type. I've been out there a couple of times, Corey, and I think San Diego is probably one of my favorite cities when it comes to the winter meetings. They ought to have it there every year. Yeah, I, th- I think about some past winter meetings and the situations we found ourselves in wishing that we would have been in a place like San Diego. I think about Washington and the horrible Nashville. weather, the scary hotel that we had to stay at, and yeah, Nashville. Orlando wasn't too bad, but you go to Disney, and I know this is his first world baseball media problems, but you go to Orlando for spring training to cover the Braves. And then you find yourself back in the exact same place that you're going to be in a couple months when yeah. you're doing this. So that, that wasn't that great. Not ideal. Well, you go to San Diego for any reason whatsoever. I feel like that's a pretty good spot to end up for a, a long weekend or a week. You probably need a little bit more time than that if you're flying out from Atlanta. But either way, you'll be there for a week for the baseball winter meetings that are happening out there. And uh, that, I think, is always something worth watching and, and something worth keeping you updated on. And we'll continue to do that over the course of the off season as we keep you going on the podcast side of things. So make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcast. Just search for From the Diamond there. Now, one of the big things that I think everybody has been taking notice of over the past, especially few weeks, but really the past few seasons, is that the Braves are a club that has been on a steady rise when it comes to team payroll, Corey, since they moved into Truist Park and the Battery area. Now, last year was yet another record-spending year for the team, and then we got word that the Braves were eyeing a top-five payroll in all of baseball this after creeping back into the top ten this season. At first, it was CEO Terry McGurk who was saying it. Now, it is Liberty Media head honcho Greg Maffei, who is on record as of this week, telling shareholders he believes that the Braves should be in that top five over the next few years. That's, of course, a key component of this quote. 
The Braves are going to be exploring a spinoff stock, of course, that could be yet another profitable venture. So all of this seems to be adding up to the Atlanta Braves continuing their recent trend of being one of the bigger spenders in baseball. And that, what, a decade ago? didn't sound like anything that was happening anytime soon. I mean, everyone who's listening to this more than likely contributed to that status, too. The fact that the battery became such a hit, that people were coming in droves to see this team, and obviously it played out in in wins on the field. But this is going to be incremental. This does not mean that you're going to go out and you're going to sign – you know, Jacob deGrom and, and bring in that shortstop and, you know, add another reliever and on and on and on. This is going to be an incremental thing, and some of it's going to be eating deals. It's going to be, you know, what you're able to ha- happen during the season. Um, but they've not, the Braves have yet to be a team that has faced luxury tax penalties. Um, we'll see if they're willing to go that route and how deep they're willing to make this hurt. Now, I know that's the part of the, the deal that most teams are probably not excited about, the luxury tax deal. And Maybe that's something that over the course of the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years continues to evolve as well because there's a case to be made for artificially depressing spending amongst some of your bigger market teams, not necessarily being the most exciting aspect uh, for the players' union, I'm most certain. And then it creates a a tier of bottom-feeding teams that are getting revenue-sharing money from the top teams, but then they're not putting the revenue-sharing money into the payroll of their team. And you see where I'm going with this. (laughs) It's not exactly a perfect system, so they could still continue to work on that. But when it does come to being one of the top payrolls in baseball, when you look at those clubs, it goes with the territory of being over the luxury tax threshold. And the Braves, if they do, in fact, get into that top five, there's really just no way around that. Yeah, and I think they're in a situation, too, because of the financials and because of the fact that they're bringing in so much money as revenue off of what they've been able to do with the area in and around the World Series. Series. You you can't do anything but spend. If you want to continue that kind of, you know, expectation, you have to put money into it. Now, the one thing I will say on that is they've obviously created this environment where so much of the team is under control that is cost certain that they can just supplement, right? You can go out one year and you can add that high AAV guy for a one or two years and you can, you know, pick up deals within the season. I, I just don't, I don't see them being a team that you're talking about a 220, 225 payroll year after year. I see it being more fluctuating because so much of what they have is certain with the core. Yeah. And, and that's a big part of what the Braves wanted when they made these deals, but it is important to look at as these deals go along you're not going to have all of your players. I mean, really, there's this nice little window of what the next two to three years where you're kind of getting the max value of that cost certainty. Then they start to incrementally go up. But, you know, who knows what everything is going to look like over time, and I don't mean in the next year or two, but whether it's three, five, seven years, the luxury tax is something that's going to be revisited at some point and revised and going to continue to evolve just as many things on the labor front do across all of baseball. And I'm going to put all that to the side. Just wanted to point out that, This is a pretty big story, and that Braves fans should feel heartened by the fact that their team is spending at a level in which I think a lot of people have expected them to be able to spend and need to spend for quite some time, and we've seen them make the moves towards doing that over the past three to five years since moving into the new ballpark and having that run of success all the way through the World Series. Now, we also had a busy week last week with awards. Michael Harris II taking home the National League Rookie of the Year award over teammate Spencer Strider. 22 first-place votes for Harris. Eight for Strider, one inexplicable vote that did not include Spencer Strider anywhere on it. Make of that what you will, but we knew these two guys were going to be one and two. I had a feeling Harris was going to take this award. Strider won a couple of the other ones in some of the other publications, but you know both of these guys, there was no wrong choice between these two, but congratulations to Michael Harris, who becomes the Braves' ninth rookie of the year. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously Michael Harris second had a fantastic season. Spencer Strider as well. Um, I did notice a Christmas tree in the back of Spencer Strider set up there when he was on MLB Network. What a getting, yeah, getting an early <laughs> jump there uh, on the holiday season. I was somewhat stunned, though, that Michael Harris second took 22 of the 31st place votes. I really thought that this was going to be a lot more split down the middle than it was. Um, Strider ended up getting 21 second place votes. So I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, if you kind of you know try to read the tea leaves going into it, and you have the Sporting News Award going to you know Spencer Strider, you know had the MLB Cho- Players Choice Award going to Spencer Strider, mm-hmm. and then you know the uh, Baseball Digest goes Harris's way. It kind of felt like things were a little bit uh, you know leaning towards Strider getting another win, but obviously you know a position player can yeah. impact the game in so many different ways, despite how you know unprecedented and historic the season was that Strider had I just was a little bit stunned by that that discrepancy in first place votes. Yeah, but I did expect I, I I believe that Michael Harris was going to win that and it's not a blowout it wasn't a landslide by any stretch of the imagination but I think if there's any group in which as you mentioned the uh, the value of a position player might have been more on display the baseball writers were probably the group that was going to stick to that in a way that maybe some of the others didn't and you know, there was no wrong answer. Well, I will again. say, so think about the the voting happens, right, is the every NL team has, you know, has two has two people vote. How many of those guys actually got to see Spencer Strider pitch? I think that's a part that's of a it, good too. Question. And if you saw the Braves after May 28th, you saw Michael Harris II out there. So I think that's part of the—it goes into it as well. Yeah, it definitely could. And it, either way, I mean, this is an award that, you know, is one that means an awful lot. And to have two guys that were in the running to be— Rookie of the Year or the Rookie of the Year runner-up was a pretty special season for the Braves. I mean, they had this with Freddie Freeman and Craig Kimbrell some years ago, but not very often do you have two rookies that are going to do this kind of thing. And Kimbrell, I think, was more of a runaway Rookie of the Year winner that year anyway. He was. uh, It kind of is what it is. But uh, as far as other awards are concerned, Brian Snitger did not win Manager of the Year. It went to Bunk Showalter. The Mets did turn things around. I don't think that you can ignore the fact that the Mets really were basically the antithesis of what they were in 2021. And I've said this, and I'll continue to say it. The Mets did lose their 10-and-a-half game lead. They did lose the National League East to the Braves. The Braves took the National League East from the Mets. All of that should speak to Brian Snitker's case for being a National League Manager of the Year, were that to be the case. Now, Dave Roberts and the Dodgers won 111 games, so there was a, a, a rather notable third party involved with this Manager of the Year voting. But uh, a little bit surprised that uh, the Buck Showalter won, but not shocked. But I also have felt like and have said on the show all year long, he was a big reason for changing the culture of that Mets team to win that 101 games. You just had a Braves team that wrote a more compelling story, in my opinion, in the same division. Yeah, and in Buck's defense, I mean, they were without DeGrom and Scherzer for a long part of the season, and those were obviously two pieces that they thought were going to be their workhorses for the duration of the season to it get them to that point. It would make more than one game in the standings difference yeah. were you to have it. But I still think you can't give the award to a guy when the one of the other finalists made up 10.5 games in the division to take him down for division crown. Um, certainly with the Dodgers and with the Mets, we're talking about the two biggest payrolls in baseball. So I, I, I thought it was going to be Roberts based on this, based on the historical nature of 111 wins. 
Um, but man, I really thought uh, Snit was going to end up getting that thing. But you look at, it, I mean, it wasn't a runaway in terms of the votes. I mean, Buck had first, you know, eight first place votes. Yeah. Dave Roberts had eight. Uh, Snicker had seven. seven. Oliver Mormol had five. Rob Thompson had two. It was all over the place. Um, it wasn't a runaway, but I, I really was surprised that Buck Showalter ended up with that. Yeah, of the three, I did think that Roberts probably was going to take it for the regular season award. Mm-hmm. Now, it's worth pointing out that all three of these managers, all three of these teams, they did not go anywhere close to in the play, and neither did the St. Louis Cardinals either. So really, the guy that finished in fifth place took his team the furthest, but this is, of course, a regular season award. And I promise people on Twitter, I'm not tweeting about this oh. award again until next year. So <laughs> I, I promise you that. I may not put the same moratorium on it for the purposes of the show because we got to talk about it in some way, shape, That's or right. form. But as far as awards that are probably not worth arguing over, Manager of the Year might be at the top of my list as far as... Uh, those things go. But, you know, it, you'd much rather have your manager be on that list and Brian Snitker and what the Braves accomplished in 2022. I mean, that's that's a heck of a comeback by anybody's standard. And had he won that, it would have been worth celebrating, though the Braves didn't get to do the kind of celebrating in October that they wanted to be doing. Now, Max Fried was the runner-up to Sandy Alcantara in the National League Cy Young race, as Alcantara was the unanimous choice for the NL Cy Young Award. That should surprise nobody. I don't think uh, Alcantara has really been the guy who every time you ask, anyone you ask, I don't know that another name really ever comes up. And if it does, then that person probably doesn't have a very straight face when they're talking about it. Freed, though, a terrific season for him, and he has definitely cemented himself, I think, as one of the top starters, top left-handed starters in the game. I loved this analogy that Sandy Alcantara was the workhorse in an era of thoroughbreds, and I thought that was really, uh, I mean, that that was what he was. I mean, he logged more innings than anyone else, and he was fantastic in those innings. Uh, Max Freed had 10 second-place votes. It was the highest finish for the Braves since Tom Glavin was second in 2000, so... Uh, based off of what he had to deal with late in the season, which we'll get into later, I mean, was certainly, you know, just I think puts even more of a spotlight on it. Freed, you know, had me, from my perspective, had reached, you know, the ace summit a while ago. He is very much there, and I think this just underscores that. Yeah, and you don't get a runner-up finish in the Cy Young Award if you're not an ace-caliber pitcher, at the very least for that season. But for Max Freed, you know, he's been trending in this direction since joining the Braves rotation back in 2019. Now, as we all know with Max Freed, he was not himself down the stretch, and in fact, he was, uh, as the old saying goes, sick as a dog uh, when the Braves and Mets were battling and the Braves swept that pivotal series to take over the National League East from New York. Now, we knew Max wasn't himself over the course of that couple of weeks. I just didn't realize how badly it had gotten, or how bad it had gotten, and you and I were both down at the ballpark on a pretty regular basis. We just didn't see Max Fried altogether that often, but I want you to hear from Braves pitching coach Rick Kranitz, who was on MLB Network's High Heat this week, talking about just what Max Fried was going through once he got sick in late September. Take a listen to this. Against the Mets, you know, he came up to me, I want to say the third inning, and said uh, he wasn't feeling well. Just watch him. I'll give you whatever I can give you. And then and uh, I've been right up to the fifth inning, came up to me, and he, he pulled me down into uh, the tunnel down there. And he was he was visibly sick. He was throwing up, and, and we just couldn't put him out there anymore. I thought he was throwing the ball pretty well that game. Uh, he had given up one run in five innings and thrown the ball well. He had it in, in hand. And then uh, he just never felt – he never got better. He, he he felt sick. I think he lost 15 pounds going into his playoff wow. game. And, wow. and wow. Oh, yeah. So he just did not feel well. He actually didn't travel with us to Philadelphia, I think. And then he he, uh, he went back to the hotel when we were in Miami. You know, that last day, he didn't even get a chance to celebrate with us because he went home he was, because he wasn't feeling well. So this was a prolonged uh, illness. And, yeah, it was just too bad it came at the uh, the, the wrong time for him. 
Yeah, wrong time for him, wrong time for the Braves. But if you had told me that Max Fried, who, I mean, this is a guy that does not have a lot of, he's not carrying a lot of extra weight, to lose 15 pounds over the course of what amounts to, what, about 15 days tops? I can't even imagine how he was able to go out and give the Braves what he did against the Mets, then go out there and start game one of the National League Division Series. I mean, for Max Fried, that start was the first time he hadn't pitched at least five innings all season long. Just crazy to think that's what he was trying to overcome. Yeah, and I think it explains a lot, right? I mean, when you go back and look at that performance and the pitch velocity was down, I mean, it just averaged 97, 92, excuse me, on the average fastball had been 94 all season long. Every, I mean, everything was diminished from what we expect for Max Fried performance-wise. So I think it made you understand it a lot more. Uh, but certainly he wasn't himself out there, and it no. was not a performance that is anywhere close to what we have come to expect from Max Fried in big games. No, but when we wanted to know, you know, how is Max Fried doing? How sick was he? Well, now you know exactly bad. how sick he was. If you're losing 15 pounds in the course of, you know, between a week or two, that's not the way that any professional athlete wants to be going. Heck, that's not the way I want to be going. So hopefully I don't have to deal with that anytime soon. But to go out there and compete on the Major League Mound, pretty darn impressive for Max Fried. Just Bad timing for the Braves, unfortunately. Coming up next, we're going to see what else is happening across the world of Major League Baseball. We'll take our trip around the big leagues. We'll do it right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley alongside Corey McCartney here in the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on a Saturday evening. Appreciate you making us part of your sports weekend. And all, as always, want to remind you, you can find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you subscribe there. Find us on the Odyssey app as well. We'll keep you covered all throughout the hot stove season and in the lead-up to spring training 2023. But, Corey, it's going to be a minute before spring training gets started, and a lot of things have to happen before then. One of the things that always happens in the offseason right after the World Series is Awards Week. We talked a little bit about the Braves Award uh, candidates and, of course, the award winner. Congratulations again to Michael Harris, the second unwinning National League Rookie of the Year. Over in the American League, there was also another very exciting young center fielder, he of the Seattle Mariners, who won that award. That, of course, would be Julio Rodriguez. I know that we look uh, across baseball for all the great young stars, and it always, I feel like, at least gets you energized and excited about the future of the game. We got a little sneak peek of Julio Rodriguez in a home run hitting contest uh, at Dodger Stadium at the All-Star Game. Then the Braves and Mariners, they matched up, and we got to see a little bit more of Julio Rodriguez. This is one special player, and he is going to be in Seattle for a long time as well. Yeah, I, I absolutely love me some Julio Rodriguez. And I think the fact that you have a market like that that has a certifiable star for the long term is just about as good as it gets for Major League Baseball. Right? I, mean, I think that just it just feeds into that notion of you know now that we have this new schedule and everyone's going to see mm-hmm. everyone that you get to pencil in either you know this coming year or the next you're going to see Julio Rodriguez in your city and I think that's to the benefit of Major League Baseball. Yeah, and I know part of it was the 2020 schedule getting whittled down to 60 games, but you know Mike Trout had not played in Atlanta since 2014. The Braves barely, if ever, see the Los Angeles Angels. I mean. That's just one of those things where if I had to think about, well, for the next eight years, I might be able to see Julio Rodriguez live like twice. That's not the most exciting thing I can think about when it comes to the schedule. But you bring up a really good point. It's going to be fun to see that guy both home and road, but have the opportunity for fans at Truist Park to file in and see some of the great players from across all of baseball. And Julio Rodriguez, most certainly one of those. So we know he was the American League's Rookie of the Year winner. We know all about the National League winner and Michael Harris II. Again, congratulations to him. We talked a little bit about Manager of the Year. 
and the fact that Buck Showalter was able to, with quite a turnaround for his club and 101 wins, to win it in the National League. Over in the American League, uh, what a season for Terry Francona, who has been no stranger to this award and no stranger to winning over the course of his managerial career. But I don't think anybody expected the Guardians to be where they were when the season came to a close. But as you and I joked about throughout the course of the summer and all the way into the fall and into October, somebody had to win the American League Central. It just seemed like for the longest time, maybe nobody wanted to. Yeah, so Guardians uh, GM Chris Antonetti ended up getting Executive of the Year. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, he's not the one that had to take 17 rookies in a major league record (laughs) and turn that into a division (laughs) title. Terry Francona did. And I think, I mean, it just... This is the third time he won it, and I think you consider what he had, you know, at his disposal in Boston. This was, I mean, this, this was, was unreal, that. right? No. I mean, this no. <laughs> was this was a ridiculous. I mean, this is this is as good as it gets as far as a managerial uh, work within a season. And people wonder what does it mean to be manager of the year? How do you set that criteria? This is how you get manager of the year: is taking what was on his plate and winning that division. Yeah, getting creative with what you had, and whether that was just some key pitching from maybe some guys that you weren't overly familiar with when the season started. But, I mean, they Emmanuel Clase is one of the things yeah. the best relievers in all of baseball. It didn't hurt to have that uh, anchoring your bullpen. Uh, we know that Jose Ramirez is one of the best players in the National League, if not all of ba- or excuse me, American League, if not all of baseball as well. And so you do have a couple of good pieces. But, yeah, everything else was pretty much mix and match and, and do the best that you could, whether it was small ball, or just strong defense and good pitching. I mean, that was uh, the, really the hallmark of the Guardians. And so congrats to Francona for winning that award. Uh, looking beyond that at the Cy Youngs, again, we talked about the National League and Sandy Alcantara being unanimous. Well, how about the unanimous winner on the American League side, Justin Verlander, doing that at 39 years old, coming off of Tommy John surgery and really showing no signs of slowing down when it comes to his plans to keep pitching into the future somebody is going to go out and pay him an awful lot of money. Yeah, so a lot of uh, oxygen spent on Aaron Judge in what may be the greatest contract season in baseball history. Justin Verlander not far behind when you think about opting out, coming off of a year removed from Tommy John surgery, and having the season that he did with a 175 ERA. I mean, every every word is that he has his sights on 300 wins and 4,000 strikeouts, and he is going to take do everything he can to get to those numbers. Um, I, I, I'm fascinated to see what this offseason is going to mean for him because I think he's looking around, maybe trying to get a three-year deal. I mean, it's going to be high AV, but, man, he is he had a fantastic year, and he shows no signs of slowing down. Do me a favor. Look up the strikeouts of Justin Verlander career if you can because I know when it comes to wins, 300-game winners, we're not going to see very many of them. He's got 244 heading into his age 40 season, yep. but in terms of strikeouts. He's at 3198. So he'd need about 800 strikeouts. He struck in 175 guys last year. I don't know if the math's going to check out for the 4,000. Yeah, strikeouts. he's probably going. I mean, I would say he's probably going to play five or six more years in order for that to happen. And yeah. is that a reality for a guy, you know, know, going that into that his age 40 season? It, it, and it, it, will he just stick around to make it happen, or does if he's not Justin Verlander level? Is he going to want to continue that path? I mean, 56 victories is also going to be pretty tough. I mean, he is a guy that has shown that he can throw six or seven innings per start. He threw 175 innings coming off of Tommy John surgery. So who am I to say that Justin Verlander won't put in the innings? You look at the course of his career, he's been both a thoroughbred and a workhorse yeah. throughout. So yep. it wouldn't be altogether that surprising to see him make a run at it. But you need your team to win. So, you know, if he can win 15 games a year, 
you're still looking at you know four more years in order to get there. That's the average of 15. So do you go then with a multi-year deal, or do you play that mercenary route where I'm going to go year to year, and I'm going to pick what's going to be the best situation for me to know that I'm going to get those wins? Maybe it's the years and the options that you can get and yeah. have control of the option, have it be more of a player option. So, all right, well, I'll sign here for $37 million this year. I don't know what it's going to be. feels like Clemens at the end, though. Yeah, it, it could, and, you know, that's – you know, at, at that age, what club is going to be out there saying, hey, we want to give you a four-year deal? I can't imagine there are many teams that are going no, to want no. to. It's almost preferable for the team to, hey, we want to have this guy in here. If this works out, we'd love to have him back next year, much like the Astros did this season and much like the Astros might do again. We'll see how all that plays out. We don't know yet. Uh, MVP, National League, Paul Goldschmidt. He did kind of begin to fade in the second half. I wasn't sure if that was going to open the door wide enough for somebody to take it away from him. Uh, but he was flirting with a triple crown for most of the summer. Not altogether surprising to see Goldsmith win the National League MVP. But as you talk about oxygen being spent on Aaron Judge. How about the oxygen that was spent on Aaron Judge or Shohei Otani? Shohei Otani or Aaron Judge? I'm here to tell you, I don't know that there was a wrong choice there, but I do know one thing. Historically speaking, both of those guys had incredible seasons. We just haven't seen a creature like Shohei Otani come in and do the kinds of things that he did, being a top-five hitter and a top five pitcher. Yeah, and I don't know that the current landscape really allows us to quantify what Shohei Otani is because you can, you know, how many times do we see a great pitching performance? And we have had, obviously, Justin Verlander, a guy who had won both MVP and Cy Young. But how many times do we have that conversation of, okay, well, the pitcher's going to get the Cy Young, the player, the position player will end up getting MVP. It seems implicit, right? Yeah, so the fact that we don't have something that sums it all up, right, and the fact that we really can't quantify all that Shohei Otani does... I was happy to see it not be unanimous just because I think what Otani did deserved mm-hmm. some level of of you know uh, credit or whatever you want to call it. I just didn't feel I mean obviously there was a lot of historics that went on what Aaron Judge did and yeah. he was fantastic yeah. but just can't underscore you have to be fantastic to take away Shohei Otani MVP at this point. You do. And you you basically have to have the kind of season that Aaron Judge had, I believe. So yep. is somebody going to walk in next year whether it's Aaron Judge or somebody else and hit 60 homers again? Or, or do the kinds of things that, that he did last year from a slugging pers- perspective, it's going to take a historic season like that, you know, winning a triple crown, that kind of thing, that takes away enough shine perhaps from Shohei Otani because a- as much as I love seeing what Otani's done, we don't know how long he's going to be able to keep this up because no one's ever done this before. Yeah. I mean, he is blazing a whole new trail of which I don't know that there's any comparable that you can make because as much as people want to point at Babe Ruth, well, Babe Ruth didn't strike guys out the way that Shohei Otani's doing. He didn't have that kind of arsenal. He was a great pitcher for his time, great hitter, of course, for his time. But we're just talking about a different type of athlete, a different type of dominance in a totally different type of game at this point. And it, it pretty much it should underscore both what Ruth did and then what Shohei Otani's done. That the fact that nobody was really doing anything anywhere close to this in between those two men just tells you exactly how special what both of them accomplished was. Now, when we talk about baseball history, talking about the Hall of Fame, of course, we know Babe Ruth is there. One man who is really working hard to find his way in is Pete Rose, the all-time hit king and a man who has found himself on the outside looking in since 1989 when he was banned for baseball by then-Commissioner Bartlett Giamatti. And this was something Faye Vincent, something Bud Selig, and something now Rob Manfred is just not really seeming to be open-minded about, and that is reinstating Pete Rose from the permanently ineligible list. I would like to point out that at the time that Pete Rose was banned from baseball, the Hall of Fame has, and still does, its own control of what exactly makes you eligible to be in the Hall of Fame. That's not Major League Baseball's call, but once you get put on the ineligible list, the Hall of Fame decided, okay, well, if you're on that list, then you're not eligible for the Hall of Fame. 
Pete Rose is on that list. So basically, uh, Pete Rose has once again written a very heartfelt, tear-jerking letter to uh, Rob Manfred about wanting to be taken off the ineligible list. And Pete Rose, now in his early 80s at this point, has a Hall of Fame-worthy career from the statistics that he put up. There's no question about it. He broke a rule, though, that there's a sign on every door that says, just do not do this. You're not allowed to do this. For any circumstance, there's just not going to be an excuse for it. And now he's found himself where he is. So to make this long story uh, that has just gotten longer every single year, it feels like short. Rob Manfred has basically pointed at the Hall of Fame and said, you figure it out. Where do you weigh in on this? Because it's felt a lot less gross when DraftKings was not officially yeah. lined up with Major League Baseball and they weren't raking in money off that kind of thing. And I think that's one of the underlying stories here, right, is that they have been, you know, we went to winter meetings in Vegas at Mandalay Bay, you know, and they're yeah. talking about, you know, the MGM or whatever being the official, you know, gaming partner of Major League Baseball and <laughs> on and on. It's just all so, like, seedy at this point. But to go within Manfred's quote of his uh, reaction to it, I thought he said, it was interesting, he said, I think it's a conversation that really belongs in the Hall of Fame board. I'm on that board. I just It's just not appropriate just for me to it. get in front of those talks. It Wouldn't it be of Manfred's, you know, in his best interest to get out in front of it and say, yeah, let's make the Hall the ones that ultimately decide. So he stops asking me to get in, reinstated or whoever the next commissioner is because this is all he really wants. To me, this has always been about the Hall. Like, not, well, yeah, it's about Pete Rose getting into the Hall of Fame because, Again, I would not be upset if Pete Rose, the player, was put into the Hall of Fame. Pete Rose, the person, I got all kinds of problems with, and it has very little to do with the fact that he bet on baseball at this point because there have been some other things that you're free to Google that we're not going to talk about on the show that make him a little bit questionable. Now, are there questionable characters in every sports Hall of Fame and probably every room that you walk into? Uh, Yeah, very well there could be. But if we're talking about this particular set of circumstances, I think this has always been about the Hall deciding what makes you eligible or ineligible for being considered and being voted on to be into the Hall of Fame. I never feel like this has been in Major League Baseball's um, court, so to speak. So think about the Clemens, Bonds, Rafael Palmero thing, where we now are seeing that move on to the the era committees. The writers had their chance to, to decide how they wanted to view those guys. Give them their chance to decide how they want to view Pete Rose and let that speak louder than the commissioners saying, you know, being just hands off with it and saying, yeah, you know, ultimately this is the the board, you know, the, the Hall of Fame voting bodies issue. And, I, I, you know, I'm not going to weigh in on this. Let them let I mean, ultimately let it get to that point. So they yeah. can so there can be some definitive stance on this that comes from somebody other than the commissioner. Yeah. And Bartlett Giamatti banning him from baseball wasn't like. I don't think had anything really as much to do with whether or not you go into the Hall of Fame or whether or not you're ever going to manage another Major League Baseball game. I think he wanted to stop him from managing, and that was definitely what banning yeah, from baseball Yeah, I don't think he wants do. to work in baseball. I don't he, think wants, he just wants that plaque, and that's all this is about. I don't think anybody's taking a chance on that at this point anyway. But be that as it may, we're not going to solve all the problems of Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame on this episode of the show, but we're bringing it up, I guess because it seems to come up about once a year. As we continue, we'll be wrapping up this edition of From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we take a look at some of the other stories happening across the hot stove in baseball. We'll do it next. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Take a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. They're wrapping things up here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley along with Corey McCartney from the Kia Studios. And uh, we have talked about uh, everything going on with the Atlanta Braves, which thus far was a flurry of roster moves this past week. And, of course, the waiting game that we're playing with free agent shortstop Dansby Swanson, among all the other big free agents that are out there seeing when and if they're going to sign somewhere. But when it comes to free agency, which we talk about a lot over the course of the winter, every once in a while, 
We find a bizarre layer to this story, Corey, and I think that we found one here this week, and it comes in a word that, man, the Players Union doesn't Mm -hmm. take lightly and doesn't ever want to hear even hinted about, and that word, of course, is collusion. A story this week about Aaron Judge, the New York Mets, and New York Yankees, and the alleged, I would guess, reluctance of the Mets to wade into a bidding war with their crosstown rival. I thought this was fascinating. Corey, what's going on so, in the Big Apple? Yeah, so this stems from a November 3rd SNY article, and you know, Major League Baseball is investigating whether owners of the Yankees and Mets had improper communications around Aaron Judge. The, the story cites sources that says Hal Steinbrenner and Steve Cohen enjoy a mutual respectful relationship and do not expect to upend that with a high-profile bidding war, which is the absolute last thing that the union wants to hear when you have two of the highest-spending teams in baseball and one of the biggest players in the market, Aaron Judge. I don't know that that could be worded much worse in terms of what it implies. And what it implies is, hey, you, you're $230, million, $50 million payroll and my $240, $50 million payroll, well, yeah, we won't really push you to have to spend outside of your uh, desires for a player like Aaron Judge. That's basically what this message is saying. If I'm understanding that correctly, is that Steve Cohen and his mad, crazy money is not going to just go wild and spend it on Aaron Judge out of respect for the New York Yankees. Well, <laughs> out of respect for players that reach free agency, that's pretty much a thing you can't do. And if you have not really looked into it in the history of Major League Baseball and sports in general, uh, collusion is a real thing. It has happened before, and that's why the Players Union does not take anything like this very lightly. And SNY is the official network of the New York Mets. So. Yeah. Somebody somewhere should have known a little bit better than that. Yeah, I mean, team owners were found to have colluded against players. I mean, remember back in the 80s, 85, yep. 86, 87, the unions filed grievances, and it, they were called Collusion 1, 2, and 3, which may be the worst trilogy uh, in cinematic history. <laughs> well, um, next to the sequel, Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, there you go. But this is obviously a big issue from the end that you want, you know, from the union standpoint, you want a player of Judge's ilk to get the biggest deal possible for what it sets up down the line. And, and one of the it, biggest players potentially in this, or a player potentially, yeah. says, oh, we, we won't do that to you guys. And you think about the some of the teams that are the most likely to get into a derby to try and take Judge away from the Yankees, and among those three teams, you're going to have the Giants, you're going to have the Dodgers, mm-hmm. and you're going to have the New York Mets. And have yeah. one of them potentially tied into this, this is just bad news all around for everybody. Yeah, that's just crazy to think about. And the collusion that you uh, were talking about of the mid-'80s, I mean, think about all of the different layers that that had in it. I mean, you had players that in 1987, if you wonder why Tim Raines only played 132 games, I believe it was, well, it was because he wasn't able to really re-sign anywhere else, so he just kind of had to go back to Montreal. Meanwhile, his old teammate with the Expos, Andre Dawson yeah. signed what has long been, and it's a little bit of an urban myth, but a, a blank contract to play for the Chicago Cubs in 1987. He went out and won the MVP award that year on a last-place club, which is also pretty wild. But so many other players that dealt with not being able to sign anywhere else because the uh, owners had basically had a shady backstage agreement that, hey, you know what, we're not going to bid on them, so if they won't take what you're offering, then I guess they can just sit at home. And that is not a thing that anybody is going to allow to – appear in any version here in 2022 or beyond. No, and then you also have what's going on in Houston right now where Jim Crane has taken scrutiny for comments. So he said Justin Verlander is seeking a Max Scherzer-type contract, you know, which means a high-salary three-year deal. He's, because of the CBA, he is strictly prohibited from discussing contract negotiations as a team owner. So a deal that was put in place to stop this kind of communication, you're talking about one of the biggest guys on the market and one of the biggest owners in the sport, crossing those lines. Yeah, and you simply cannot mention it. I mean, it's not a, 
well, this is out of an abundance of respect. No, it's a you can't mention it because those numbers, those terms, those negotiations can't be in the public light whatsoever. So if Justin Verlander did walk into Jim Crane's office and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking three years at 43 a year, what do you think? And Jim Crane says, kick rocks, that's fine, but he can't go out and do an interview that says, yeah, Justin Verlander came to me and said he wanted three years and $130 million. It can't happen. You can't do it. It's not allowed to be publicly uh, presented in that way. It undercuts the negotiations by taking leverage away from the player in this particular case or by simply giving the team some kind of leverage, other teams. And, you know, there there's so many different aspects of this that just smack of things that should not happen and things that people should know better than. Yeah, and it just seems like there's just some weird stuff going on in Houston right now with obviously with James Click and that departure and just, yeah. you know, it just, there's just a lot of really strange things going on behind the scenes. I've seen some people, you know, throw out there that Jim Crane kind of thinks he's baseball's version of Jerry Jones and it seems to be playing itself out here in the public eye. But um, these rules were put in place to empower the players and every, you know, there's so many, we have these channels set up for these negotiations for a reason. And I just, it's 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 damning to have one of the the you know the World Series champion, and we've had such weird stories come out of Houston two really? weeks removed from the fact that they won. It's just it's and just before insane. that, I feel yeah. like have, have they well, been in the yeah. news? I mean, yeah, I'm just under Jim Crane's. <laughs> leadership. I'm just talking about Crane and the fact that so much has happened. You know, just within the internal turmoil that's happened. You know, with, with I mean, I it's just it's just really bad news for Major League Baseball. And again, we're talking about Judge and Verlander, two of the biggest guys in the market. Yeah, it's just it's altogether surprising that these kinds of things would come out. I mean, the report by SNY, uh, maybe journalistically irresponsible, maybe just trying to look at it like, hey. We don't believe that this would happen, but to imply or allow people to infer that there could have been a conversation between Steve Cohen and and Hal Steinbrenner about who we're going to spend on and who we're not going to spend on on each other's rosters, that's not going to be the kind of thing that's going to earn you a whole lot of friendship. Jim Crane, meanwhile, in addition to appearing to be as uh, Cespedes Barbecue, our friends over on Twitter have called uh, maybe a bad hang. Yeah. I mean, you go back to the way that things were going in the spring of 2020 when everything blew up for the Astros, and he's like, oh, we're going to go take responsibility for it. Then he held that press conference and like, and we're never going to talk about this again, so you should just get over it. That might have been one of the worst jobs of PR I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I can't just, I just don't see a scenario where Major League Baseball wants Jim Crane being the public face of anything, and now here they are, you know, you got him as the... Owner of the World Series champion. Just, uh, this is not a good thing for baseball. No, probably not. But there is a lot of good stuff to happen on the baseball ledger here over the course of the offseason. We're going to keep you posted on all of it, keep you up to date on all of it here on From the Diamond. This is our last live show on oh, Sports man. Radio 92.9 of the game for the year. We'll be back in the year 2023. We really look forward to that. And we, of course, look forward to giving you all the Braves and baseball news you could possibly want wherever you get your podcast, You can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever that might be. You can also find us on the Odyssey app. It has been an absolute pleasure all season long, Corey, and I look forward to picking up our next episode and following the Dansby Swanson saga and all the other news that we have over the course of the winter. Yeah, appreciate it, Grant. It's been an absolute blast, man. All right, we have wrapped things up here and a great season here on From the Diamond. My special thanks, of course, to Stephen Gagliano for helping me out and for Mike Conti for giving me the opportunity to come back on here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game and talk baseball with all of you. We'll talk at you soon. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.